Hello, everybody. Kyle here, host of the Chaos and Shadow podcast. Welcome back to our second installment of our Paranormal Minisode series. This week, I'm pulling from our archive, or vault notes, if you will. For those that don't know, our vault notes are all of the research we do from the week, bundled up very nicely by my co-host, Pagan. She takes these, makes them into a very compelling case with imagery and the such, and puts them up on Patreon. You can check them out in the link below. They are totally for free. Enough housekeeping, let's dive into it. No matter how I look at it, I can't help but see the case of Betty and Barney Hill as a tragic one. Though I admit I am new to the UFO field, it does seem from readings that Betty truly believed in their abduction. Our story starts on September 19th, 1961, as Betty and Barney Hill are returning from a spur-of-the-moment vacation to Niagara Falls in Montreal, Canada. The couple were driving to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, when Betty claims to have observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter upward to the west of the moon. I should take a brief second to say that everything in my research, many, many pieces of documentation and many different stories, they all point out how reliable of witnesses Betty and Barney Hill were at the time. They were an interracial couple, and at this time in the 1960s, you really don't think they would want to call attention to themselves. Some people speculate that there actually might have been psychological stress on them because of their coupling in a time when that was not okay. However, apparently where they lived in New Hampshire was rather progressive and it didn't bother them uh, per some of their own notes. As for their careers and hobbies, well, Betty was a social worker with a degree from the University of New Hampshire. Barney wanted to get into engineering. However, due to race restrictions and the such at the time, he was not able to progress in that field. He took a job as a postal worker some distance away from their home, doing a rather grueling commute. And, and he seemed to put quite a bit of passion into his work, especially for a guy who was denied his true passionate career. Overall, the Hills were a very put-together couple. They were grounded and reliable witnesses. They also apparently had very little interest in UFOs before this incident, that they went in as complete novices, and only afterwards did they start exploring and learning about ufology. Back to our drive, it was about quarter past ten when Betty saw that light in the sky. When it started moving, they knew there was something wrong. They parked their car along the side of the road, got out, grabbed binoculars, and Barney gets a gun out of the trunk maybe to defend himself from whatever the light was, or realistically, against bears, which are very common to the region. Betty sees the craft pass in front of the moon with multicolored lights. Barney actually thought the government may be harassing them. In some of his later documentation, he refers to the object as a Piper Cub, which was a light aircraft popular around the 1940s, so it would be something familiar to him. Whenever the craft started descending and heading their way, they realized it was not a plane and it was time to return to the car and get out of there. The hills continued on their journey. Approximately one mile south of Indian Head, they said the object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. From there, he exited the vehicle with his binoculars, looked up, saw the craft, and was able to look through windows. Inside, 
he saw humanoid forms dressed in some rather peculiar garb. Barney claims that while he's looking at these figures, he sees some of them start to depart the viewing area of the craft. While that's going on, this leader, as it seems, telepathically communicated with him, telling him, stay where you are and keep looking. Barney struggled to tear himself away from the connection. However, when he did, he ran to the car, screaming at Betty, they're going to capture us. Bolting into the car, they took off at high speed. Betty opens her window and looks around. Almost immediately, the hills heard a rhythmic series of beeping and buzzing sounds. What felt like the car was vibrating. At this point, the hills claim they experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled. Not only that, but they realized that they had traveled nearly 35 miles. They only had a vague recollection of what had happened in that time. It was as if they were in a haze, one of those kind of forgettable moments where you zone out while you're traveling. They didn't converse with each other. They did nothing meaningful. Even to them at the time, it felt odd, and that feeling is going to grow. Upon arriving home, they felt off. They report having some odd sensations and impulses they just couldn't explain. Betty wanted to keep all of their luggage by the back door. She kind of thought it was contaminated with radiation or something of the sort. Same with her dress. She had been wearing a dress earlier that night that was fairly new and undamaged. However, there was now damage to it, as if someone didn't know how to unzip the zipper. At the time, she didn't think much of it and goes and puts it in the back of her closet. Their watches apparently would never keep time again, and Barney's binoculars from earlier in the night, apparently something happened that tore the strap right off. It didn't end there. Barney's shoes were all scuffed up, right above the toes. It's later explained that he may have been dragged from the vehicle. These drag marks would be consistent if your feet were flopping behind you and only your toes or your shoes are scraping on the pavement. There's many more oddities that surround this case. And for those, I recommend you go listen to this episode of the podcast. There'll be a link in the description. Ten nights after the UFO encounter, Betty started having a series of dreams that would stick with her. They lasted for five consecutive nights. Betty expressed her concerns to Barney. He was sympathetic, but not concerned. She was remembering something, so she started writing it down. She began a dream journal and started looking deeper. She began remembering men surrounding the car, being dragged out of the vehicle, being dragged deeper into the woods, being taken aboard a craft. She then remembers that her and Barney were separated. She met a man named the leader, and also a man that was the examiner. They began to poke and prod at her. Some of these experiments were extremely invasive, the most notable being a rather large needle shoved into her navel as a kind of pregnancy test. Apparently, the aliens were not attempting to be cruel, as when Betty protested in pain, the leader waved his hand in front of her face, making it all disappear. When the examination had concluded, the examiner left the room and she was left with the leader. She was able to have a conversation with him. At one point, he promised her a book with strange writing that she could take home as proof, proof that this had really happened. As we'll see here in a bit, that proof never materialized, and that's one of the most tragic parts. Betty continued her conversation. The leader was asking questions that she couldn't answer. She just 
didn't have the information. She wasn't a leader, so she offered to get him in touch with people that could help. Though they sounded interesting, they implied that they were on a trade route expedition. This was something they had the time to divert for, but they'd have to wait until their next trip to actually get in touch. They told Betty not to worry about them finding them. The aliens could take care of that part. It sounds like Betty and the leader actually got frustrated as they refer to this as a falling out, this miscommunication, her not having all the information and all the answers for him. At that point, they decided to escort the hills off of the craft. And this is what really hits my heart. The leader, who had just promised Betty that she could take this book home as proof, ends up removing it from her possession. She asks why. She exclaims that no one will believe her, to which the aliens say, that's the point and send them on their way. In November of 1961, the same year, the Hills were interviewed at length by NICAP, a UFO investigative body. It wasn't until March of 1963 that the Hills first publicly disclosed the UFO encounter with a group at their church. It's at this Unitarian church where they're introduced to the idea of hypnosis. A guest speaker by the name of Captain Ben H. Sweat of the United States Air Force, who'd recently published a book of his poetry, was reading selections to the audience. It was then that a pastor asked of his personal interest in hypnosis. When his time was over, the Hills approached him and disclosed their encounter. This was the first time. And this was in November of 1962, a year before they would go public with it at that church. Though we're about out of time in this episode, the story of the Hill's hypnosis and the recordings of it, which can be found online, are very intense. I'd actually warn some listeners. They're very vivid recollections. These are audio recordings, and there's some gut-wrenching moments. As I said earlier, I think the Hills genuinely believe that they saw something. Whether hypnosis proved to be more of a hindrance than a helper, I can't exactly say. But I will say it does muddy the water on the validity of the case. Sadly, Barney passed away on February 25th of 1969. He was only 46 years old. He was said to be suffering from an ulcer when this all started. Hence one of the ideas that may have spurred their trip. Upon returning from the alien craft, Barney's health only continued to decline. Betty, however, lived to be 85, passing away on October 23rd of 2004. Up until her death, she was a UFO advocate. She was very active in the community. She actually spoke about, or I should maybe say against, the validity of some hypnotherapy. Betty worked to draw the distinction between the medical hypnotherapy they had undergone and the more at-home style of hypnosis we see more commonly nowadays. A very interesting thing to note, most of Betty Hill's notes, tapes, and other items have been placed in permanent collection at the University of New Hampshire, her alma mater. I personally looked up some of that stuff when I was researching our episode, and it was fascinating. I highly recommend you do the same. Again, link in the description below. Thank you for listening to this episode, and if you'd like to dive deeper, I highly recommend you check out our podcast, Chaos and Shadow. There, my co-host Pagan and I did an entire hour on this case. It's a fascinating one. There's so much to learn. If you'd like to keep this and other paranormal projects running, please check out our Patreon. We are completely crowdfunded, so every dollar you can give 
helps us a ton. Just for the price of a coffee every month, you get a bonus episode and much, much more, including early access to these episodes. It also helps the channel a ton if you can hit the subscribe, bell, and like button. In the comments below, let me know where you first heard about this case. And finally, we record our episodes of Chaos and Shadow live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash Kyle Dempster Studios. Our current recording time is Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. If you can't be there for the live recording, fret not. They're archived on Twitch, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, basically everywhere you can store a file. Until next week.